If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 this morning. So obviously we're starting a new series uh, this morning. All of this stems from Bob Schwerbs. It was his uh, desire for me to preach on the book of Revelation. <laughs> I'm putting him on the spot. But uh, no, uh, he asked a great question. said, could I preach on the book of Revelation? I said, I can. But we first have to cover Daniel because much of it hinges on Daniel. So we're going to be in Daniel for a number of weeks, and then we'll go to Revelation. And if we all last till then um, and Christ doesn't return, then uh, we'll get through both books in due time. <clears throat> but with that being said, we're just going to read the, the first seven verses and we're mainly giving an intro this morning, so we're really not going to delve too deeply into any of these verses, except for maybe the first two. But just to give you a context, let's, uh, let's hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand at the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. And it is Abednego, not Abednego. Abed. Everybody say it with me. Abed. Got it. All right. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for this time together. I ask that you would help us, Lord, not to just pronounce words, but rather we would know your word, we would love your word, and that we would seek to, um, to hide it deep within our hearts. Lord, we pray that even in this intro, you would help us to relate to what has happened a thousand years ago and more. We pray that you would continue to help us to um, identify with the people of God in, in previous generations, but also to identify with Christ in this generation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As most of you know, there was an unexpected insurgency into the land of Israel in which many people were murdered in their own homes, whereas others were left for dead in the city streets. Additionally, many were kidnapped and stolen across Israel's border, likely never to be seen again. You think I'm talking about the recent news. I'm not. I'm actually talking about what happened in ancient times, but it sounds similar to you, does not. Uh, basically, what was known as the first Babylonian captivity that took place in 605 B.C., the Babylonians, after defeating the Egyptians at the famous Battle of Carchemish, uh, the upstart commander Nebuchadnezzar, who would become king that year, uh, also besieged Jerusalem for three months. And finally, the city of Jerusalem fell. As a result, many of the most important inhabitants of the city were kidnapped. They were taken away to go live in Babylon for the rest of their lives. Most of them were part of the royal family. Some of them were also of other aspects of noble blood. In addition to that, this was the first captivity. So there are two others that would come later in time. But they got, they got the best of the best at first, the cream of the crop, if you will. 
And in addition to that, that uh, group of people that were stolen, uh, Nebuchadnezzar also went into the very house of God, into the temple of the Lord, and stripped the gold from the temple and took many of the jewels and, and the other furnishings that were of value and brought them into his temple, into a pagan temple in Babylon, and held everything captive there, if you will, in a foreign land. So the call to worship that Mark shared with us this morning to get us into a gloomy sort of a mood, um, this it literally is, it captures well the mood of the Israelites. Uh, all of a sudden, unexpectedly, they were taken against their will. They were forced to live in another land, and they were forced to sing the songs of Zion in the land of Babylon. And you can see why uh, that would be a hard uh, thing for them to do. This was not a high water mark for the land and the people of Israel. It was really one of the lowest of the lows. And yet we juxtaposed that call to worship then with the hymn that followed Jerusalem the Golden, which is the, uh, the great anticipation of the return. To Jerusalem, the great anticipation of being with God's people in God's place under God's blessing, being in the, the place where God walks amongst his people again. But what a heartache it would have been for the Israelites during that time, for the Jews who were taken from their homeland and forced to live in some other place, never to return. If you think about it, it's the, the next generation that's born in Babylon. They're the ones who return back to Israel eventually, but that first generation that's taken they die in Babylon. All throughout the rest of their lives, they live outside of the promised land. So the book of Daniel is uh, similar to the book of Ezekiel in the fact that they both are written while in exile. These are two prophets that are writing to God's people who are not in Israel, but outside of Israel and longing to go back home. Of course, uh, the book of Daniel is a rather complicated uh, book to try to give an introduction to because there's so many different views upon it uh, since the emergence of biblical criticism. Uh, there have been a question or challenge to just about every facet of the book of Daniel. In so many different ways, we find that uh, the author is challenged, the place where it was written was challenged, the date in which it was written was challenged, every aspect of the book, even the, the makeup, uh, the structure, the order of the book, all of that has been challenged in one way or another. But traditionally, we have believed that Daniel himself is the author of the book. In fact, we see in the second half of the book of Daniel, we see uh, the writer in the first person is saying, I, Daniel, saw this vision of the Lord, and begins to share this. And it happens at least four times in the book of Daniel, where Daniel says, it's me, I'm talking to you in that regard. But the question comes up over the first half of the book, that's more of the narrative section, if you will. In that section, uh, the author is not writing from the first person, but rather from the third person, and is just saying, this is what happened to Daniel and his three friends. So some people have thought as a result that there must be at least two authors of the book, one that wrote uh, the second half of the book and one that wrote the narrative section in the first half of the book. But even those who believe that maybe there was a second person who wrote the visions they don't think it was actually Daniel. They think it was somebody else impersonating Daniel, someone uh, trying to get more gravitas to his own uh, writings by impersonating this, this man, if you will. But really, the ultimate reason that most critical scholars reject uh, Daniel as, as the author is because of the dating of the book itself. I love the fact that Daniel loves to date things. As a history major, this guy was dating everything. 
Every chapter almost, he tells you exactly what year this took place. If you look in the first verse of, of chapter 1, he tells you that this all took place in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim in Judah. And we know that to be the year 605 B.C. And we know that because we can compare the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, which also would be his first year, as well as the reign of, of, of the Egyptian pharaoh at the time. You compare all these histories together, and it's pretty certain that that is the year that this all took place. If you go to chapter 2, verse 1, if you flip over there real quick, you'll see, in the same way, he tells you that this happens in the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar. So it was two years after the events that took place in chapter 1, which would mean that that's now 603 B.C. See how exciting this is? You know exactly what year these things took place, or pretty close at least, much more so than any other Old Testament book prior to that period of time. It gets much easier to date things because the, the history is much easier to follow. Well, in the same way, uh, every other chapter in which uh, an event is recorded or a vision is seen, uh, Daniel is telling us what year this took place. And usually he's always telling us it took place in the, in the certain number of year of King Darius or King Cyrus or King Belshazzar. Any of these guys will tell you this is when this took place. As you know, we don't date anything like that anymore. We don't have a particular president that we date our country by, but rather we always say this is what? The year of our Lord. 2023 because we believe this is the final king there's no other to replace him we're going to constantly continue to date by christ himself but back back then christ had not yet come so they're still dating things according to the king who was in charge at the time so uh the last date that we have in the book of daniel is going to take place uh, at least chronologically chapter 10 verse 1 there we're told that daniel sees a vision in the third year of king cyrus which we know to be 537 B.C. So if you go from the time span that we're given, from 605 B.C. to 537 B.C., we're talking of a span of 70 years, which would be expected given the fact that we know that Jerusalem was supposed to be in exile for 70 years, right? Uh, so it makes, makes perfect sense as far as that goes. Um, but basically, what this comes down to then, this also tells us a little bit about Daniel himself, the person. Have I lost you guys yet? You're not excited about this stuff? This is awesome, right? So what you have to understand is that if seven years took place, and Daniel is the guy who was a part of the events in the beginning part of the book, and then he's the one telling you about the events in the second part of the book, regardless of whether uh, you think he's the same author or not, the point is he had to be alive during that whole span, right? So that tells us about what age he was when he went to Babylon. At most, he was in his upper teens, so we're talking probably an 18-year-old boy who is now brought against his will to Babylon, and he lives there for at least 70 years. So we're talking from the time he's 18, well, probably into his early 90s. The same guy. So that should tell you a little bit about uh, what he's experienced in that land uh, in exile. But as I said, there's another competing view to this, though. And that competing view basically says Daniel didn't write this book, and it wasn't even written during this period of time. Instead of being written in the 6th century, rather a number of critical scholars will say that it was written in the 2nd century, 400 years later. Now, why would they say that? Well, ultimately it comes down to this. It comes down to their assumptions as well as their prejudices, if you will, against the Word of God. Uh, it comes down to this. Do you really believe that God would tell us the future hundreds of years in advance? If you don't believe that, 
then Daniel didn't write this book. If you believe that God would raise up a man who could tell the king his dreams without being in the same room with him when he's dreaming, then you might have a hard time believing that this book was written by Daniel. If you believe that things like a person being thrown into a lion's den, that the lions hadn't been fed in two weeks, and yet they're not eating him, if you don't believe that, then probably you don't believe that Daniel wrote this book. You see, it, it, there's a lot of assumptions that have to be made based upon your own presuppositions, what you think is allowable and what's not. What I find convenient is that uh, the way most critical scholars will date this is based upon the fact that the last event that they think it's referring to in the fourth kingdom that he mentions in chapter 7 and chapter 9 following is the kingdom of Greece. They think it, that's the last kingdom that's referring to. So the kingdom of Greece would have been in existence 400 years later. You follow me? So basically what they're saying is whoever wrote this book is writing it afterwards and then looking back and saying God predicted all this. You follow me? So it's a really convenient way of saying this didn't actually happen. God didn't know what he was talking about. There is no such thing. Uh, so we're not going to date it according to that. Uh, well, that's ultimately the view. But the problem with, with that critical view is it doesn't jive with Scripture itself. Uh, what we find in the New Testament, at least, we find in chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 33 and 34, they're describing the figures in the book of Daniel as if they're real people who lived in that time. So maybe the New Testament writers, they're all wrong, and they're all mistaken. Maybe Jesus himself was wrong, because in Matthew 24, verse 15, the Lord Jesus himself refers to Daniel's prophecy as been written by, guess who? Daniel. So then Jesus is wrong. So you, you, you see how all this sorts of stack up. So you pretty much come to the point where you deny all of Scripture if you begin to deny whether or not this was actually by Daniel or is about Daniel, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Daniel's not the only person that uh, b b biblical scholars have denied the existence of. They also deny the existence of King Belshazzar. Uh, he's also mentioned in the book of Daniel on a couple of occasions they wondered if this guy really exists, and they came to the conclusion that he didn't because in the secular accounts of history, his name was never mentioned. But lo and behold, in the 19th century, something called the Nabonidus Cylinder was found, and his name was mentioned, and they had to change their view of whether or not the guy really existed. Interesting, isn't it? In the same way, we find the Dead Sea Scrolls were found much later on that confirmed that the same Writings were exactly as they said they were, and again, a lot of confirmation in that regard. But the problem is it's really going to come down to your assumptions and your prejudices, if you will, what you believe is possible. As far as the dating of the book itself goes, it's fascinating. I don't know if you knew this, but half of the book of Daniel is actually not written in Hebrew, but rather is written in Aramaic, which was the language of the Babylonians the language of the Babylonian Empire. So it would make sense that he would write in that language if he were living in that time in exile in Babylon, right? Uh, and interestingly, the latest literary scholarship has determined that the Aramaic that's used in the book of Daniel could not have been written in the second century, as the critical scholars have said, but is in fact much older language, much older vocabulary that no longer was used in the second century. So it goes back to the sixth century again. More than likely, it's actually the guy, Daniel, who wrote this stuff. Makes sense to me. 
But again, I have to go through this just to help you see it, because you'll, you'll find these, these conversations uh, throughout. If you open any commentary in the book of Daniel, the, probably the first couple of chapters are going to ask you, did he really write this? Was there a second author? Did these events really take place? It's very common. But the very fact that half of it is written in Aramaic should tell you something also about the purpose of the book itself. The, the, Daniel's wanting to convey something to a people who don't speak Hebrew. Now, that could be the very Israelites themselves who had lost the language of Zion because they're away from home and they're not living, but it also could mean that he's purposely trying to reach a group of people that are Babylonians, that he's in their courts. He's writing to make sure that they understand that language as well. But the problem is, uh, again, uh, you have some other chapters that also throw a little kink in this. Uh, did you know there's some other chapters that are out there that are not in our Bibles that you might could find in the Apocrypha? For those of you Catholic people, you'd be very familiar with some of these. Uh, one's called Bell and the Dragon. Are you familiar with this story? You familiar with the story of Susanna, as well as the, the prayer and the song of the three men of Azariah. They're singing the song while they're in the fiery furnace. There's some extra stories that are out there that are not in your Bibles, and you've been shortchanged because we only have a smaller amount in our Bible, if you will. But the truth of the matter is those are all written in the Greek language, which Daniel didn't know. And we're dated later on in the second century. You go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, it doesn't exist. None of those chapters are found. Out of the eight copies of the scripture that we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls that date much earlier on, there's no copy of, no version of any Greek language of any of these chapters that are mentioned whatsoever. Have I lost you yet? I promise you we'll get to a point here in a minute, but I'm trying to give you the background to this as best as I can. So the stories that are found in these extra chapters, they also kind of don't really fit the whole theme of the book itself. When you get to the story of Bell and the Dragon, for instance, it makes Daniel out to be like a, an ancient Sherlock Holmes. He's basically trying to figure out how the pagan priests are tricking everybody. And so he debunks their trickings. Is that the word? Trickery, thank you. Uh, in the same way, in the book of Susanna, now he's turned into Columbo, and there is a... I mean, literally, that's what's going on. He's now acting like a lawyer, and he's basically debunking these two elders who have accused this virtuous woman named Susanna of sin. And in their cross-examination, he determines they're both liars and proves them they're all wrong. Uh, that's a big part of that story. And then uh, the, the other story just gives us a little bit more information about the fiery furnace, if you will. But, but the point is, it doesn't really coincide with the theme of the whole book uh, altogether. Um, the, the issue of this book of Daniel, there's a structure to it. And it's an interesting structure given the fact that it's written in two different languages. Again, it's not two different authors writing it, but rather one author who actually knows both languages, which would make sense because in the very first chapter we're told that Daniel is having to learn the language of Babylon. He's having to learn their literature. He's having to study all of these things. The first chapter is written in Hebrew, but then the, chapter the chapters 2 through 7 are in Aramaic, and then chapters 8 through 12 are in Hebrew. Uh, it would make sense that he's writing something in Aramaic in that regard. But in this particular issue, there's a, there's a structure that's placed together. The first seven chapters, excuse me, first six chapters have to do with the narrative sections, what's happening to Daniel and his three friends as they're in captivity in Babylon. And then you get into chapter 7 through 12, and now we have these esoteric visions, these apocalyptic visions that God is giving to Daniel in the future. Interestingly, <clears throat> chapter 7, even though it's a part of the second half of the book, 
is not in the Hebrew like the others. It's actually in the Aramaic, showing that there's definitely an overlap between the languages and the themes of what's going on. It's meant to be seen as one whole, and what I'll hope to prove to you later on is chapter 7 is the pivotal chapter to the whole book that gives its, its primary theme. What is being revealed in this chapter is the whole purpose of the book of Daniel. But ultimately, the second half of the book seeks to answer the question of when will God's people be returned to Israel? And ultimately, when will the kingdom be restored? That's the question that's on the mind of Daniel the prophet. In fact, we find, uh, interestingly, Daniel is actually reading another prophet. He's reading the prophet Jeremiah. And learning from Jeremiah that they were supposed to be in exile for seven years, the problem is they're getting close to that 70-year mark, and Daniel doesn't see any evidence of any immediate restoration, of any immediate, let's get out of this place and let's go home. He hasn't seen any of this. And so he begins to uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and the Lord begins to give him these visions. And it's interesting, instead of 70 years that uh, he was anticipating to, to put all of these things together, uh, the Lord is instead revealing to him something like 70 times 7. So hundreds of years in the future, buzzards will go off. And whatever that is. Uh, but basically he's saying, so 70 years there is going to be a return to Israel from God's people. But as far as the second half of the question, when will God's kingdom be restored? We're talking hundreds of years, not 70 years. So literally about 500 or so after this, is we're going to see something. When is this kingdom going to be restored? It's actually very similar to what Jesus does in that passage we read earlier that Mark was sharing with us from Luke 21, similar to Matthew chapter 24. Both of those chapters, the disciples are asking Jesus, when will all these things take place and what is the sign of your coming? What is the sign of the, the glorious kingdom of God being brought here and the Romans being destroyed and all those good things, as an Israelite mind would think? And interestingly, Jesus gives them a few immediate details of things that are to come soon, but then he begins to talk about something much farther in the future as well, where he says many wars will happen, many battles will take place, many disasters you'll, you'll see before the, the, the Christ comes into his kingdom. But in the meantime, he begins to tell them that you're going to stand before many kings and governors as a witness unto me. And this should remind you of Daniel, because Daniel's in the same place that the disciples are. The disciples are going to be brought before kings and governors just as Daniel has been, and some of them are going to be held against their will. They're going to be held captive. Some of them, he says, will even be put to death for the sake of their witness. But ultimately, the end is not yet to come. So the book of Daniel is very similar to these chapters in the New Testament where Jesus is basically saying, it's here and not yet. What you're waiting for, part of it has come, but the full fulfillment of it is not yet to come. It's still many years in the future. Um, I think I've shared with you before the prophetical vision, what they see in the future often seems like it's all occurring at the same time. You, know, you go out west where you see real mountains. You go out west and from a distance it seems like you have three mountains and they're all exactly the same distance from you. It seems like that, but then you drive farther and farther, many, many miles and you realize that one of them is much closer than the other, right? And you get even closer, you see another one farther away than that. Well, the same way the way prophecy works, Daniel, Jesus, all of these figures are giving you things that are taking place in the future, but 
It's just sort of saying it all in one lump sum, if you will, but there are much distance between the fulfillments of each one of these prophecies. And so as a result, the author is telling them to continue to be faithful in their generation as they wait for the final fulfillment of the things to come, that the, the kingdom has not yet come in that regard. <clears throat> and that's exactly what the book of Daniel does. The narratives are showing uh, this aspect of being brought before governors, being brought before kings. Daniel has to stand before a number of different kings and to bear testimony unto them and yet also suffer persecution. He's going through quite a bit of antagonism throughout this. And so there's a message to God's people of how to be faithful in the generation that the Lord has placed them. But at the same time, we see also in the second half that they're, they're also God still knows what's coming and he's trying to give us a picture of how and when that's going to take place. Um, in fact, look at this very closely. Um, go back to verse 1 and verse 2 since you haven't lost your place there. Notice in those two verses, there's a difference of perspective in the way history is read. The first verse, it looks as if all hope is lost for the Israelites as they're being brought into captivity in Babylon. The king Nebuchadnezzar has besieged the, the, the very fortress of David himself in Jerusalem. He's conquered it all. People are being taken captive. If you were to read the newspapers uh, in, in that time, it would basically be Babylon victorious. Jerusalem has lost everything, right? But then look at verse 2. In verse 2, <clears throat> we see uh, Daniel says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now this would be the newspaper that the angels would read, if you will, at the time. They're seeing it from heaven's perspective. What does it say? God gave Israel's king into the hand of the king of Babylon and gave him all this treasure and allowed his own temple to be stripped and given to a foreign king. This is all part of God's plan. This is not unexpected in, in whatsoever way. But as I said in the beginning of the sermon, these tragic events seem so unexpected to the Israelites because they're taken off guard. They weren't ready for this to happen. It just happened so quickly. But God had been forewarning them of this for many years many years in fact you could go as far back as at least a thousand years if you remember in the law of god when moses gives them <coughs> uh, the covenant stipulations and he pronounces uh, the blessings and the curses upon them for either keeping the law of god or disobeying the law of god in leviticus chapter 26 it's a really long chapter there's another one in Deuteronomy that does the same thing that, that shows you all the blessings that will come upon you for keeping God's law in the land of promise. And then he'll also show you all the curses that will come upon Israel for not keeping his law, right? Well, when you get in chapter 26 Leviticus to verse 33, it's now come to full fruition. So there are many temporary curses for breaking God's law. But when you get to verse 33 and following, he says in that section that if they don't repent of the smaller and the more temporary curses that are brought upon them, Ultimately, God would bring them to a foreign nation against their will, and he would lay waste all of their cities, unsheathe his sword against them through these foreigners, and scatter them among the nations where they would rot away in an enemy's land. A thousand years before this happened, he says, this is what will happen if you continue to walk away from me and pursue idolatry. But you could say, well... That could happen to any nation after a thousand years, right? That's not such a great prophecy in that regard. Well, what if I were to give you one that was a little bit closer in time, that was a little bit more specific? In 
2 Kings chapter 20, for instance, the prophet Isaiah confronts the king Hezekiah. And the reason why he confronts him is because he allows an envoy from Babylon to come into the temple itself and to look at all the jewels and the, and the wealth of the temple. And the reason he's doing this is because he's making a covenant with the Babylonians to enter into an alliance with them against the Assyrians. After God told them not to do that, King Hezekiah is no longer trusting in the Lord as God, but rather trusting in horses and chariots and foreign Invaders, right, to, to protect him from the Syrians. And as a result, when this happens, God sends Isaiah the prophet to speak to him about this and tells him of something that's going to happen in the almost immediate future as a result. 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 16 through 19. Here's what Isaiah says to him. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried away to where? Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. <clears throat> this was written a hundred years prior to the first captivity in Babylon. Very explicit in details of what was supposed to happen, and it happened exactly according to plan. Why Babylon? <laughs> Why this particular number of years? Why uh, in this particular way? Now what we gather from this, again, traditionally speaking, what we understand is that Daniel is actually of royal blood. Daniel is clearly of the tribe of Judah. Likely he's one of the sons of Jehoiakim, the king himself. He and his three friends are the cream of the crop. They are the best of the best. They have the, the, the most say, if you will, in the kingdom of Judah. Why do you think Nebuchadnezzar would want to take them first? Because they're of royal blood. And they're taken against their will, and they're castrated, made to be eunuchs to serve in a foreign king's court for the rest of their lives. This is something God had predicted a hundred years before it happened. It's strange, though, uh, when King Hezekiah hears the words of this prophecy from the Lord, and the Lord shares the fate of his own sons, this is Hezekiah's response. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? Every time I read that, it rubs me wrong, and I have a beef with King Hezekiah. It's strange, though. I've heard it, I've heard it said from a number of people uh, in my generation or above, who basically say, well, this world is going to hell soon. I'm so glad I won't be here. I think, I think many of us have said it. In this particular case, uh, Hezekiah certainly has a hand in the sin and the consequences of the sin that are about to take place. I just can't believe that it would be his perspective. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him, what did you mean by that? Because that doesn't sound right to me at all. Because you're, basically your grandkids are going to be castrated, and serving in a foreign land the rest of their life? Really? That's, that's, that's what you're wanting? I don't know about that. <clears throat> but what we'll find throughout the book of Daniel, uh, thankfully, is that despite these horrendous circumstances, and keep in mind, Daniel and his brothers more than likely saw half their family murdered, and their women relatives raped and killed and everything else under the sun. They saw a lot of bloodshed before they were brought against their will to Babylon. 
and then to be there and then to immediately be forced into this uh, education <laughs> against their will in a totally different theology, a totally different um, view of the world uh, had to be extremely discombobulating. But what we find there is that Daniel and his three friends, throughout all that affliction, continue to put their hope in the Lord, continue to give a, a, a consistent testimony before great opposition. And, and these stories are written down for us to, to help us to think, you know, how are we going to stand before kings and governors? How are we going to stand before the opposition when those times of persecution come? It's meant to inspire us in, in one way or another. But ultimately, you have to know, the book of Daniel is not simply about the afflictions and the advances of Daniel and his three friends. As I mentioned to you before, chapter 7 is the pivotal chapter in the book around which the whole book is structured. And there, Daniel's eyes are not upon himself or upon his three friends. His eyes are completely upon the Lord Jesus Christ who is to come. You'll find when we get to that chapter, it's pointing us to the Son of Man who's going to receive from the hand of God himself, the Ancient of Days, all the kingdoms of this world. And where he finds his comfort in the midst of all of this chaos that he finds all around him is the fact that the Lord Jesus is coming. The one they have been looking for all this time is finally coming. When he's coming, he doesn't know exactly, but he knows that he's coming, and that helps him to persevere uh, in his faith. Again, although Daniel comes from the tribe of Judah, he is, not, uh, he is not the Savior that we're looking for. You have to know that. Even if you think about it, there's a reason why Daniel doesn't have a genealogical record after this. He can't have kids. He's not mentioned as anyone being of any significance after this. He's lost, if you will, to history. There's a reason for that. It's not because, as the biblical scholars claim, he was a fake, made-up guy of legendary status. He was a real man who basically lost everything uh, and who's literally, as the Scripture says in 2 Kings, whose flesh rotted away in a foreign land. Uh, you imagine if you were in that position, you know, in that sense, uh, you know, that, that God were to tell you as a 17, 18-year-old boy, by the way, my will for you is that I want you to be a eunuch for the rest of your life and, and living in a foreign land and being persecuted just about every day as you stand before different kings who are constantly trying to mold you to their particular will. Certainly not the desire that any of us would have for our kids, but that's exactly what he was facing. But as we see, uh, the Lord is willing to allow this to happen. The Lord is willing for his own temple to be ravaged for his people to be stolen, for his name to be blasphemed because he has something much greater in store for them. All of this suffering has a purpose behind it. God is, is, is overseeing all of this history to accomplish something much, much greater. It's not about the triumphs and the victories that we all expect in our own personal lives, but it's ultimately the triumphs and the victories of Christ. It's all pointing to this, of how Christ is going to restore all of this and, and the beauty of this is that God has laid out all this in advance. Uh, what we see in verse 1 and verse 2 of this text is that God planned this. This was not Nebuchadnezzar you know, being able to thwart God's plans. This was not somehow uh, a challenge to God's authority whatsoever, but rather something that God had planned a thousand years in advance. This is exactly how it would unfold. But it's interesting how Daniel continues to, to the book of Daniel continues to focus on two things from the very beginning. The treasures that were stolen from the temple will be returned back to Israel. 
Uh, we'll see this, especially during King uh, Belshazzar's reign. He's drinking from uh, the, the, the sacred vessels uh, that were part of the Lord's house. God's going to return that back. In the same way, he's making the same promise that God's treasured people are going to be brought back. And, and, and they're going to be restored to that rightful status again as the Lord's people in the Lord's land under the Lord's blessing. So then I finally ask you this question, why does God bother then to tell them all of this stuff in advance? hundreds of years in advance, knowing that most of them, all of them, are going to die well before any of this comes to pass. Well, I, I think of the passage in Isaiah 46, verse 9. I love the way um, uh, it's phrased here. The Lord speaking says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have proposed, I will do it. What you have to understand about this book is they're in the midst of the worst possible days of the history of Israel. It doesn't get any worse than this. The book of Lamentations would sum up exactly what they've experienced this first generation. This is what they're undergoing. And yet... The Lord is going to bring all of this about for their good. If we can keep that in mind in our smaller trials that we undergo, maybe it will help us to bear a faithful witness in the midst of our afflictions and our tragedies and our chaos in that regard. But that's where the Lord is heading us. Ultimately, God is the God of history. Christ is the answer to all of it. He's going to point us back to that again and again. So I hope as we read this together, we, we see that. But uh, uh, let's meditate upon that as we, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, I do ask for your help in being able to interpret our own particular circumstances. Lord, we know that there have been many times in our lives where we have wanted something desperately and then we didn't get what we want. Or we seemingly had something going so well for us and then we had something ripped uh, away from our hands, ripped out of our hearts, and, and experienced just great misery and great tragedy on this earth. Lord, we pray that you would continue to help us to see that you are the God who sovereignly oversees all of this. Not only do you sit upon the throne and you order these things, but that you also have a purpose behind all of these things. They're ultimately pointing us to Christ's coming. Lord, we pray that through our tragedies, through our afflictions, through our dark days, Lord, that you would help increase within us that desire for Christ's return. You would help increase our faith in Christ, that we would trust you, we would trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that as we continue to meditate upon your word, we would not be like some of those critical scholars who begin to place ourselves as judges over your word, saying that we know better than you do. We pray, Father, that you would help us to humble ourselves before your word and receive what you have for us by faith. We pray, Jesus. Name.